Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy and our discussion of the treason of Isengard. Tonight is session 12 uh, of that class. We are starting to get towards the end. At least we're in the part of the book where it seems like we redo the breaking of the fellowship uh, about uh, five or six times. But anyway, it's all good and we're making good progress. Um, and several of you are already teasing me for starting on time. You know, look, I can't win. Uh, <laughs> it's all good. I totally deserve your teasing. Um, so welcome, everybody. Uh, today, of course, is uh, a special day because it is the last, this week is the final week of our fall fundraiser for 2017. Been talking about this. We're going to be doing our live drawing in class today. Uh, at the end of class, um, so that's going to be uh, uh, so that's going to be really cool. I'll talk to you more about that in a little bit. But first, I have a big announcement, which I think that uh, some of uh, uh, some of you have already heard about, uh, perhaps already anticipated or uh, participated, I should say, uh, in the beginnings of it. This weekend, we have our big webathon, the uh, cam- the annual campaign ending webathon celebration extravaganza of Signum University, Mythgard, and everything else that we do. Um, so it's going to be Saturday, October 14th, starting at noon and going until midnight, one o'clock in the morning, something like that. Um, so, um, Anyway, so it's going to be great, great fun. There's going to be a whole bunch of stuff going on. We're going to have sort of spotlights and updates from everything that Signum does. Uh, and uh, it's, it's going to be really cool. Get to hang out with a whole bunch of really cool people. Um, we're going to be uh, also, I'm going to do uh, three different uh, sort of major segments in the middle of the day, uh, sort of interspersed throughout the day. Uh, one, of course, is going to be, I'm going to be doing a special Lotro stream. Uh, I'm going to be going to uh, do the uh, the attack on Isengard, actually, uh, the very scene depicted in this graphic in front of me here. Uh, I'm going to be getting to the, the to the uh, the adaptation of that scene of the Ents' attack on Isengard uh, in the game, which I've never seen before, so uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 get there. Uh, well, Brandon, it's not a Hobbit that I'm taking to Isengard, or, or else I'd make a little bit more of that. I'm like taking my human guardian to Isengard, which just does not have the same ring. But there it is, anyway. Um, so I'm going to end the day with that, uh, with uh, with a Lotro stream. I'm going to start the day with a special Tolkien class. This is particularly targeted uh, to the people who have been joining me for exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, because, of course, as you may know, in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, uh, we're doing about two or three paragraphs a week. And uh, we've been doing, we've been in the house of Tom Bombadil now for about two months or something like that. It feels like a very long time that we've been in the house of Tom Bombadil, which has been great. Um, so this, uh, I'm, I'm doing a special session designed especially for them, but of course, obviously open to everybody, uh, in which I'm going to be doing a, a discussion of the two Tom Bombadil poems that Tolkien wrote, kind of framing the career of Tom Bombadil. We're going to look at the 1934 Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem um, at the beginning. So the, the, the original poem in which he invented the character of Tom Bombadil uh, and upon which the Tom Bombadil of the Fellowship of the Ring was based. And then I'm going to look at Bombadil Goes Boating, which is the sequel poem that he wrote for Tom Bombadil for the poetry collection called The Adventures of Tom Bombadil that was published in 1964. Uh, So this poem that he wrote after The Lord of the Rings was published, um, already kind of looking uh, back on and reflecting on the Tom Bombadil of The Lord of the Rings. So we're going to look at those two um, 
those two uh, those two Tom Bombadil poems uh, in a in a, in a special session. Uh, so we're gonna do just like. Two hours of poetry discussion, uh, Tolkien poetry discussion. What better way to start the day, right? What better way to start our webathon? We're going to start that right at noon uh, after we be well. Okay, a couple minutes after noon after we begin, because I'm going to start on time. And wait till you guys see. You're going to regret teasing me because I'm going to be like on track and on schedule all day long. It's going to be amazing. Anyway, uh, so. I'm going to start the day with Tom Bombadil. I'm going to end the day uh, with a Lotro stream. In the middle of the day, I'm going to do another special Mythgard Academy session. Now, I've done these in years past, um, and I'm going to do another one this time. And it's kind of like, remember a couple years back when I did a Doctor Who episode? We did the Blink episode from Doctor Who. Um, and we, we did that mostly because like I finally got around to watching Doctor Who, and I was really excited about it. Um, so uh, I was like, hey, I finally like get references and can talk about Doctor Who. So we, we did a Doctor Who episode. This year, similarly, uh, I have been, as many of you know who follow me on social media, I have been watching Star Trek uh, lately. I started, I think, actually last year because uh, it's a long process. Um, but I've been, uh, I've been going through, I've watched all the original series. I watched all of The Next Generation. I'm almost completely finished with Deep Space Nine, which I absolutely love. In fact, for, for those of you who are fans, I'm right at the beginning of the final sequence of Deep Space Nine, like the seven part, whatever, you know, at, at the end, I'm right before the start of the first one of that series. And you know what? I've been sitting there for like two weeks now. I can't get myself to begin it because it's the end, right? I know that like, as soon as I'm done with, I'm not going to want to stop once I start that sequence and then it's going to be over. Right. So I'm actually, actually have caught myself procrastinating starting that. Um, anyway, um, so, uh, uh, so, and then, and then, of course, and I, I've been, I've been watching Voyager as well, uh, sort of alternating seasons with Deep Space Nine on a chronological basis. Uh, so I've done through season four of Voyager as well, which is kind of amazing, actually. Season four of Voyager, that is, like the first three seasons, I was not so excited about Voyager. Season four was like, boom, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, really good. Anyway, um, uh, so, um, so yeah, it's uh, it's 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 going to be great. So for our special Mythgard Academy session this year, I'm I'm doing a democratic election of a Star Trek episode, and I might try to squeeze in two if I can possibly squeeze in two Star Trek episodes. Um, so I've been through both of my my Facebook and my Twitter accounts. I've been I, I put a call out for nominations, had some awesome nominations. So I made up a a, a slate of a really good looking slate uh, of three episodes from each of those series that I've seen, and uh, and have been ha- people are, voting is open now. So if you go to my Twitter or my Facebook uh, account, you can. See the link uh, to the uh, poll if you've not filled it out yet. Um, we've had about uh, 140 people fill it out so far, so it's been you know, it's, it's uh, some hot competition, especially for the second place. There's like four of them that are really neck and neck, like within three votes of each other uh, for second place. Uh, so it's very, uh, uh, it's very, it's very. Very close. Every vote counts. Uh, so if you haven't voted, make sure you do that. Anyway, that's gonna. I'm really looking forward uh, to talking about uh, Star Trek with you guys there at our special Mythgard Academy session in the middle of the day. That's scheduled to start, and needless to say, therefore, will start uh, at 4.20 p.m. Precisely 4.20 now. <laughs> not a minute sooner, not a minute later. Uh, so 4.20 in the afternoon, uh, uh, then uh, uh, that's going to be... 
uh, that's going to be when we're going to start the, uh, the the Mythgard Academy. And actually, that's going to come right in the middle of a, a really cool uh, Mythgard Academy uh, segment of the webathon. Actually, we're going to have a, we're going to have a spotlight uh, with uh, several of you who are participating here. We're going to be talking about the Mythgard Academy um, and sort of some of your reflections on the last few years of the, of the Mythgard Academy. We're going to be doing some spe- a special Mythgard Academy trivia contest. Remember, we did something like this last year too. I want to do this again. I want to. I want, I want to make sure you guys are still on your toes and to give people who have watched some of uh, some of our older classes in, since last year uh, a time to a time to weigh in there. So uh, so so they're going to be trivia content with prizes and stuff. Obviously, they're going to be prizes and giveaways and stuff throughout the day. And we're going to have like, you know, special readings and videos. And I'm going to do I'm going to be doing a whole bunch of updating about Signum and where we're going. You remember in years past, I've done a state of the university address. I was going to do that. I was going to schedule that in the last couple of weeks. And I'm like, you know, actually, I want to I want to I want to do that during the webathon, because as I was planning the webathon, I'm like, the whole webathon is really a celebration of everything that Signum does. So I really want to um, um, I really want to work that in. Uh, as we go along. So that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be talking about sort of updates and, and uh, sort of explaining where we're, you know, some of the exciting new directions that we're heading in. The, well, not totally brand new directions, but uh, some of the exciting stuff that's coming up at Signum and, and, and that we're planning and all that stuff. Uh, so that's going to be happening also during the course of the webathon. So it's going to be a really cool day of extended uh, extended geekery. So I hope that you will uh, be able to join me uh, for that. Um, let's see. Uh, ah, Stephen asks, will the winner be announced ahead of time so we can watch it before talking about it? Hmm. You make a good point, Stephen. On the one hand, I was really, I'm really tempted just to leave it in suspense, right? Uh, uh, you know, to, uh, just kind of because I thought that would be fun, but you're right. Like people should be able to rewatch it prior to our discussion. That really does seem fairest. So I guess I shouldn't do the, the like sadistic thing and become drunk with power and, and withhold that information in order to taunt you and make sure you show up on Saturday. Cause that would be mean, uh, mean in both the modern, uh, and, uh, the 19th century sense of the word. Um, so, um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, well, I think, Okay, you're right. I shouldn't keep it a secret. I shouldn't keep it a secret. But anyway, okay. So I'll probably I'll 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 announce the winners tomorrow. Maybe to you know give uh, give you a little bit of time uh, to 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 watch it. You're right. You're right. I should do that. I should do that. Or Nancy, as you say, to watch it for the first time. You're totally you're totally correct. Um, okay. Um, so. What else is going to talk? Oh yeah. Now, how to join us for the webathon? So the webathon is going to be broadcast, as is my want these days, uh, on several different uh, channels. We're going. I'm going to be we're, all of the channels in which I normally broadcast are going to be used. Uh, so that is, I'll, we'll be broadcasting it both on our Twitch channel, Twitch.tv/signumu. And on the netmoot, which you find people, many of you find people are using here this evening. Um, so here's my plan. So this is the first year, of course, you know, our Twitch channel is really quite new and we didn't even really have our Twitch channel up and running exactly last year uh, at the time of the webathon. We've now have a, a year of broadcasting on our Twitch channel and I've become very fond of it. Um, and what's more, it's to me clearly an opportunity uh, for some good stewardship here. That is to say, 
whenever the webathon comes along, we have to expand our license. Normally, of course, we have you know, a hundred seats in our netmoot is usually fine, uh, but not for the webathon. If everybody's being channeled into the netmoot, we always have to increase our license, which is actually kind of expensive, and it's been worth it. You know, I've always been happy to do it, but that's because we never had alternatives, and we do now. Um, so I would like to not, I would like to, to actually save that money, especially, of course, in campaign season. I'm even more sort of painfully aware of that, right, as I'm seeing people's donations coming in, for which we're, we're so grateful. And, like, so thinking about, like, okay, so, like, this extra money that I would have to spend in order to expand the number of seats in our webinar, that's, like, four people's donations right there. Like, why would I do that, you know, or if we don't have to? Uh, so I'd rather not, if we can avoid that. Um, so we're going to use the... the we're going to be be using the netmoot. We're also going to be using Twitch. Uh, some of the sections, some of the sessions, I'll be broadcasting on um, uh, Facebook Live and Twitter Live as well. And by the way, for those of you who are listening on Facebook, where I assume my audio is still junk this evening, um, I'm going to be trying something new. I've got I'm actually bought a new microphone, which I'm going to try to hopefully see if I can fix the, my audio problem, my Facebook audio problem with that. So we'll see if that works out. Uh, but anyway, so I encourage you, if you can, uh, to watch the webathon, to participate in the webathon through, um, through Twitch. It's, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be using our discord channel as well so that you can get my audio, um, uh, in real time rather than the Twitch is delayed by a few seconds. Um, which is not a huge deal, but if you want to make sure that you're getting it exactly in sync so that we can interact a little bit more fluidly, uh, you can join our discord channel as well. If listening to me say that, uh, you can join us on Twitch and, and uh, pop into our Discord channel. Kind of stresses you out. It's okay. Just join the webinar. It'll be fine. Uh, there'll be room for you. Uh, but if you can, if you're comfortable uh, with that technology, I would recommend that. You, and it's going to be. And if when we reach our cap, when we reach 100, then the web the the webinar will be closed. But Twitch will be open all day. So. All right, so that's how to... So again, noon on Saturday is when the fun begins, and the fun is going to go all through the day and not end until probably 1 o'clock in the morning or something like that. So that's the plan. Um, And, you know, since this is the last week of our our fundraiser, I really wanted to uh, just sort of make kind of a, a, a last call and appeal for that. You guys especially, Mythgard Academy folks, you know, the Mythgard Academy viewers have been really sort of the backbone of our financial support um, for years now. You guys have been uh, just wonderful and so responsive and, and, and already have been again this year. And that's been really, really great. I just wanted to express my gratitude again for everything that you guys have done to help to support Mythgard and Signum over the last uh, several years. And again, as I say, uh, in through into this year. Um, if you are newer here and if or if you've never donated before, I just want to I just want to encourage you. I think it's, uh, you know, we always, uh, you know, this is available for free. We're going to keep it available for free forever. You know, that's something that we're really committed to. Um, you know, not only continuing what we've done, but even as we move forward, uh, hoping, as I'm going to talk about a little bit more on Saturday, um, uh, expanding it even and giving you some new and 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 uh, and, and additional options uh, for stuff, which will also uh, be free, uh, freely available. So. 
you know, it's been our philosophy from the beginning to give stuff away for free and trust that, you know, trust in the in the gratitude of those who, you know, take part in it regularly, either synchronously or asynchronously. Um, if you know, and I understand, you know, you don't have to, you know, if you don't have to make a huge donation, but every little bit counts. I'd especially encourage you to consider uh, setting up uh, a, a modest monthly donation. You know, some five, ten dollars a month. Uh, you know, those uh, those those really add up and and are 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 really important. I remember back in the old days, uh, right after we'd started Signum, uh, and uh, it was. Um, it was challenging to go because, you know, our only income was from our tuition, which we collected three times a year, essentially. Uh, so uh, trying to trying to budget things so that we would make it through from one uh, tuition collecting point to another was uh, was often kind of challenging. And ever since we've had the monthly donations in place uh, to, you know, it's nice to have a, a steady and reliable income stream like that. And as I say, those things all those things all add up. It's a really a big uh, a big help uh, to us as we keep the lights on and and continue to uh, to, to pay our bills and continue to make everything, uh, everything available and possible. Um, so, um, yeah. All right. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to encourage you to do that. And also remember we're doing a drawing today. I, I had mentioned, uh, I mentioned this, uh, the last couple times we've been, we've had this open now for the last couple weeks, ever since we began. And, uh, we've been, um, uh, so I'm going to do a drawing for everybody who has made a donation and sent an email to donate at myth at, sorry, donate at signumu.org. Um, and, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do the drawing at the end of class tonight. Um, so that means there's still time. If you haven't donated yet, you still can over the course of, uh, the, during class here today, just, just go to signumuniversity.org slash donate make your donation and then send a quick email to donate at signumu.org. Mention uh, the Mythgard Academy or the Treason of Isengard in your subject line and you'll be included uh, in tonight's drawing. Um, I'm going to choose, we're going to choose four winners tonight. Um, it'll be, um, so the, 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 the third and fourth prizes are uh, a, a book of your choice. One of the Mythgard Academy books that you don't have, or, uh, you know, one of Tolkien's works that you don't have, be happy to get it for you and uh, put a, a, a customized book plate in it that I'll make up a customized book plate for you um, to sort of commemorate your, your, uh, support of the Mythgard Academy. So, um, so the third and fourth prizes will be that the second prize will be two books of your choice. Uh, and the grand prize will be one of those same, because I want to, I want to give books away to everybody because that's fun. Uh, so we're going to have one book of your choice plus your choice of one of two other special gifts for the grand prize. Um, either, uh, you can double your voting rights to try, you know, in the Mythgard Academy, right, in the Council of the Wise, so that you can, you have twice as much say as you would have had uh, in trying to help to determine which books we read next throughout the course of this year. Or you can, uh, you can instead opt to get access to one of the course archives from Signum University. So access to any of the courses uh, that we, ha- you know, to the uh, recorded lectures of any of the courses that we've offered uh, at Signum University. So that'll be the choice of the grand prize uh, winner. And so again, the email uh, that you should, that you should send to, if you've made a donation already, uh, then you can, you can go ahead and, 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 uh, send the email anyway. Um, if you haven't yet, you still have time to make a donation and then you can, uh, uh, and then you can email to donate at signumu.org. 
So that's donate at signumu.org. And again, the address, the, the web address to go to to make a donation is signumuniversity.org slash donate. All right. Uh, and for those of you who are listening to this asynchronously, I know that very many people... Uh, uh, you know, watch and listen to these after the fact. If you're listening to these after the fact and you're saying, oh man, like, you know, I missed it. Hey, don't worry, man. Even if it's like months later or like two years later that you're hearing this, uh, it's not too late. It's never too late. Um, you know, our our campaign, our fall campaign is really just designed to be sort of the, the, the stimulus for our annual fund. Our fiscal year goes through July uh, and, uh, you know, we, we always... Um, I'm going to be talking in the webathon actually about some of our financial needs. I'm going to be doing a, a little feature on when you donate to Signum. What do we do with your money? Actually, if you're curious about that, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna explain what our budget looks like and what we use uh, or your donations for, and talk about how your giving uh, is going to be able to be really instrumental in the really significant steps forward uh, that Signum is looking to make over the course of the next. Uh, over the course of the next uh, uh, year and couple years, so that's the plan. So again, if you're if you're listening asynchronously, don't worry. There is still time for you to make uh, for you to make a big difference. So okay, let's then move on to talking about the trees in the Isengard. And I'm going to, I'm going to pause a couple times during our class today. Several of you sent in some, uh, uh, some really, a, a bunch of you actually more than I could quote in class today, uh, uh, sent in some really, uh, some really moving, uh, testimonials to sort of share your experiences with the Mythgard Academy, um, which is always so wonderful for me to hear. I wanted to share some of those with you guys tonight. Uh, again, as we're just kind of going through and, um, recognizing, you know, this really fun enterprise that we're doing together and why we're, and why, why we should support it, uh, to keep it going. Um, so, so I'm going to pause a couple times, uh, to do that over the course of class tonight, but let's, uh, let's go back to Frodo and Sam. So we were just about to start their, the first sort of what was meant to be an outline, um, but was less outline-ish than any outline he's done yet. I mean, we've seen several times before, you know, where he sort of slips into dialogue and, 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 uh, you know, sort of oozes from outline into narrative. Um, this is the most pronounced example of that kind, uh, that I think we've seen in all of the Return of the Shadow or the Treason of Isengard so far, um, where it's, sort of theor- very theoretically a projection and much more a sort of a sketchy draft. Um, so, uh, and, and this is really, you know, so we, we, we've had like a true outline in the past and this to see him really beginning to develop and flesh out what does Frodo and Sam's trip uh, into Mordor and how do they get to Mount Doom after all. You know, all that stuff is, uh, uh, is really is really cool. And that's what we're going to be really focusing on, uh, here tonight. Maybe we'll get as far as, uh, thinking about the question of time passing in Lothlorien, which is a really, which is a really neat question as well. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll see, we'll see how far we get there. Okay. Um, we're going to start here with his chapter outline, which should sound fairly familiar because, uh, this is, uh, the, remember those darling passages, uh, back a few chapters ago where he was like, 
one chapter. And then he describes something that, of course, we know in the published Lord of the Rings is going to take like four chapters. Uh, but anyway, this, this projection is kind of similar to that. 21. What happened to Gimli and Legolas? They meet Gandalf? 22. What happened to Merry and Pippin? They are lost, led astray by echoes, in the hunt, and wander away up the Entwash River and come to Fangorn. Here they meet with giant Fangorn, or Treebeard. He takes them to Minas Tirith. Again, that's, both of these things are very, very close to the old outlines that he had, right? So it's interesting to see that his thought hasn't progressed any on either one of these points since then. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean uh, it's not going too soon. This is almost like a, you know, he's sort of kind of gathering himself and and, and uh, sort of laying this out for himself, and then he's going to go and sketch out some more. And what we'll see, I hope we'll see it tonight, um, he <clears throat> is entertaining, uh, or rather is willing to entertain some fairly radical ideas about how he's going to shift, uh, especially the Marion Pippin story, or how he might shift the Marion Pippin story. So although this is very similar to what he's had before, uh, we'll see it's not as set in stone even as we might expect it to be, knowing the published text. Okay, uh, 23. What happened in Minas Tirith? Siege by Sauron and Saruman, treachery of Boromir, sudden arrival of Gandalf, now become a white wizard. Notice again that we've been tracing sort of the, uh, the different senses in which that seems to, uh, that phrase seems to be used, right? Um, the first, it just seemed to be a physical description, that they, they come upon him and he's radiant and shining, right? And then there seemed to be this question of, is uh, being a white wizard or the white wizard a really substantive change? And I think that we can see that uh, pretty clearly here. Though notice, it's not the white wizard, capital W, capital W, right? Even, even still, although it's, uh, although it's underlined, right? Although it's, uh, it's emphasized, it still doesn't have a definite article, which is kind of interesting. Um, okay, and uh, Treebeard raises the siege, we knew that Treebeard's intervention was likely to be dramatic, but we didn't... That, that's pretty dramatic. Treebeard um, <clears throat> kind of wins the battle on his own in what, like, sort of pseudo-Bjorn fashion, kind of? Anyway, enemy driven over the Anduin, horsemen of Rohan come to assistance. So it sounds like uh, Treebeard is going to is going to really score the goal and, and, and the row here, the ride of the Rohirrim is just going to get the assist here. Right. I mean, that's the, they're going to help. Right. But it's really Treebeard Who's going to, who's going to defeat the armies of Mordor. Okay. Uh, 24. What happened to Frodo and Sam? And of course, that's what, uh, that's what we're going to be focusing on. Um, and yeah, Arthur, the treachery of Boromir occurs this late. By the way, of course, remember what he's talking about here is not the treachery of trying to take the ring from Frodo, but the treachery against Minas Tirith itself. Remember when he leaves in a snit and runs off to Saruman, uh, defects to Saruman? That's, uh, that's a big deal, right? Uh, so that's the treachery, I assume, that he's talking about. So it's like the the further treachery of, uh, of Boromir that he's talking about. And I, so I assume this is still, Boromir obviously still survives Rauros, and he, uh, not like, it doesn't go over the falls, but he survives the breaking of the Fellowship, and he, uh, and notice, by the way, there's nothing to kill him yet, right? There's still no attack of orcs. It's still just wandering off and getting lost with echoes in the, uh, we don't even know where. Um, somewhere near the Antwash, right, that Merry and Pippin wander off and get lost and end up 
uh, going to Treebeard. Um, so we as we have as yet, th- there is no Ugluk, there is no there is no orc attack to facilitate that or to kill off Boromir, right? Uh, so Boromir survives to go on and betray everybody again. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's uh, let's keep going. We get to. Um, Frodo and Sam. This is clearly, although, you know, we have noticed, you know, the Frodo and Sam are the very last point of that outline. And it kind of sounds like if you just had that outline, you'd think that that was the, you know, it was all this Minas Tirith stuff that he has clearer in his head, right? And just that one kind of throwaway line about, oh, and Frodo and Sam, you know, go places. Um, that's the story that he really wants to follow. That's the story that he seems really kind of, uh, uh, kind of compelled, um, compelled by. Tony, that's a really great point. Tony makes a really interesting point about Boromir. Um, when uh, Gandalf talks about how uh, Boromir has been has been has been saved, right? Um, you know how that he's glad if if only for Boromir's sake that Merry and Pippin came along, right? And and it's there's a way in which you can say like, well, it's not really clear what exactly they accomplished, right? I mean, they didn't. Well, he died for them right? He gave them something. They gave him something to die for. He, um, he made the right call, right? He was put in the position of making the right call, uh, and made it. And that is not something to be, uh, to be, uh, uh, overlooked. But Tony, exactly as you say, this, you know, this draft kind of shows us where might Boromir, had Boromir survived, um, where might things have gone, right? Um, what from what fate exactly was Boromir saved by his death um, at Parth Galen? And you know this is at least one uh, pretty prominent option, right, of where he was uh, of where he was going. Um, Nancy says it's kind of expensive for them though. What for Merry and Pippin to get captured by orcs so that Boromir could be saved? Yeah, well you see, Nancy, it's uh, uh, you know, it's like a two birds with one stone kind of situation, right? That is to say, not only were they there to uh, 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 to be instrumental in Boromir's final choice, right? In, in Boromir's final uh, redemption, but of course, then they also got to Treebeard. You know, got where, to, as Gandalf explains, you know, end up being hauled across Rohan with miraculous speed uh, to be brought right to where they never would have come, but where they came just in the nick of time, right? So, um, you know, they have a whole bunch of jobs to do, and they're not comfortable jobs, right? But then again, that's kind of true for almost everybody in the Fellowship in the end. Um, Yeah, yeah. And uh, exactly, Sharon, it's very Boethian to have what appears to be a catastrophe turn out for good. Yeah, to turn out that that uh, that bad fortune is actually good fortune. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, on, I I really think that the career of Merry and Pippin, uh, and it's one of the things that's so cool. Remember, as we saw back in Lothlorien, Tolkien kind of has no plan for Merry and Pippin, or no clear plan for Merry and Pippin. Remember, Goadriel was like, so... Uh, you two are extras, right? You really shouldn't have come, and you should probably just, I don't know what, go home or something. You know, she really just throws up her hands, and she's like, there's no point for you, Merry and Pippin, right? Um, I don't even know why you're here. Sam and Frodo have a job. You two are superfluous. Um, <laughs> it really seems that there's no clear plan. The fact that these two 
the fact that Tolkien takes these two Fellowship members, who are in a sense at loose ends when the Fellowship breaks up, right, and turns them into this really one of my favorite illustrations of the way that chance and providence function uh, in Middle Earth is pretty awesome. I, I personally think. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Brandon. Brandon gives me an A plus uh, for the Firefly reference. Uh, yeah, sorry, I I couldn't help it here. Uh, okay. The three companions now approach Kirathungol, the dreadful ravine which leads into Gorgoroth. Kirathungol means spider glen. There dwelt great spiders, greater than those of Mirkwood, such as were once of old in the land of elves and men in the west that is now under sea, such as Baron fought in the dark canyons of the mountains of terror above Doriath. Already Gollum knew these creatures well. He slips away. The spiders come and weave their nets over Frodo while Sam, while Sam sleeps. Sting Frodo. Sam wakes and sees Frodo lying pale as death, greenish, reminding him of the faces in the pools of the marshes. He cannot rouse or wake him. Um, by the way, one really small point, but a small point that I think is really interesting, right? Um, you'll remember, of course, uh, in the published text... Sam's greenish face reminds Sam of a vision that he's seen, right? But it's the vision of Frodo that he saw in the mirror of Galadriel, right? Now, here, Sam's not seen a vision at all. He's not looked into the mirror of Galadriel. Only Frodo does in this first time through. So, Frodo's greenish face reminding Sam of a vision he's seen is consistent, right? But originally... It's the vision of the dead faces in the dead marshes, um, which obviously changes things, right? But it's, um, it's very different, right? Very much more creepy. Um, and think of the effect of that. I mean, I think that that could, uh, that could work really well. I mean, that could, I mean, I, I'm not complaining about the published text, but this is really powerful too, right? How, um, this vision of the dead, which seems kind of, you know, sad and gross and, you know, and historically significant, um, but not really personal, right? In a sense. Um, but the way in which this scene is set to make those visions of the dead and the dead marshes become a, a personal portent, right? To see uh, uh, Frodo, as it were, taking his place among the 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 dead uh, that Sam has seen beneath the marshes. Um, that really gives the whole thing a different weight. It really would have had a profound impact um, in retrospect on the passage of the marshes, I think. Um, again, not complaining about the published text, but it's a really interesting connection, I can't help but think. Um, and, uh... Arthur, I don't know why he's spelled canyons that way, with the, like, Spanish tilde on the end. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that was common. Um, Tolkien, I know did use some, like, not exactly shorthand, but he did use some uh, shortenings when he was writing by hand. Um, he was very fond of the, like, he, he very rarely, he, he often didn't write out the word and, for instance, but instead used the little, the mark that looks like a number seven, basically, which is the Anglo-Saxon symbol for and. Um, uh, 
so uh, yeah, so he 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 would uh, he would often do that. It was like the the manuscript notation, the Anglo-Saxon manuscript notation for for the word "and." Um, he often used that in his manuscript. So I know that he does things like that. It seems a little weird to be like, "Hey, I can save a letter just by putting a tilde over it." I'm not sure that's a huge gain. Um, I don't really um, I don't really know. Um, and yet, uh, 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 Tony, you're right. I mean, he did know Spanish. Um, uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, why did he... Because it really does just Tony look like he's just written that word in Spanish. Um, I can't think of a single other example of that. I don't remember ever, uh, you know, in any of the things that um, Christopher has shown us in the history of Middle-earth so far, Tolkien ever just using a Spanish word instead of an English word like that. Um so I don't even really know. Tim suggests that maybe it's just the fact that Tolkien loved diacritical marks so much, right? So he kind of prefers the the spelling that has the tilde because 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 just because he he loved diacritic marks. I'm down with that, Tim. That seems like it seems like a very plausible theory to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, and Josiah's right, putting a squiggle over a letter is also a common medieval abbreviation for a dropped letter. So yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of it works in that way as well. Um, I would be surprised, Josiah, as you said, I, I would think it would be more tend, tend to be more like that than just, if this were an example of Tolkien just like thinking in Spanish and writing it down in Spanish, I think that would be very unusual. I mean, he knew Spanish, but um, I don't, I would be very surprised by that. Um yeah, John, that's a really great point. John uh, Caldwell says that, uh, you know, reading this passage really brings home that moment in the stairs of Kirith Ungol in the published text where, you know, Sam has that moment of realization that they're in the same tale still, right, as the as Baron and Luthien were. Um, the the parallel, right, with the spiders is, is made uh, even more forcefully here um, now that he's still kind of in outline mode. Um, at the beginning of this, uh, at the beginning of this thing, I agree. And yes, it is, um, Tony, a little, uh, unnerving to think about multiple shelubs, which is essentially what we have here. It, it wasn't just Sam fighting the last of the spiders of the kind that Baron fought, right? But rather, this canyon is just like the canyons that, that Baron went through, right? Where there were multiple, you know, uh, uh, Children of Ungoliant there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Yana, you're right. Sam doesn't fight them here, right? Which is also, which is also interesting. Um, that would seem to be a little bit much, right? Because, of course, if, if it is exactly like what Baron faced, then by having Sam fight off the lot of them, right, then he would be putting Sam into exactly the position uh, of of Baron. And even Baron didn't fight them all off. Um, Baron hid from them. Um, we get descriptions of that in the Lay of Lathian, um, of Baron by night, like, hiding up trees while spiders are crawling around underneath, right? It's really, really creepy. But... Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, 
<laughs> Tony says he'd like to think that Sheila was there and remembers Baron. Yeah, me too, Tony. Absolutely. This is why this is why we're including Sheila as a character in uh, uh, the Silmarillion film project season three, because, you know, we're having the, you know, the spiders, the children of Ungoliant are going to be there and she was there. Obviously she would be right. She was alive. Um, so yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, so we've got spider Glenn. Anything else I wanted to talk about? I don't think so. Um, okay, let's keep going. Then he sat and made a lament for Frodo. Oh, man, there was going to be another poem? Oh, we already got the lament for Gandalf. We're going to get a lament for Frodo, too? I feel robbed of the lament for Frodo. Oh. Anyway, sorry. I'll try to put that behind me. After that, he put away his tears and thought what he could do. He could not leave his dear master lying in the wild for the fell beasts and carrion birds, and he thought he would try and build a cairn of stones about him. The silver mail of mithril rings shall be his winding sheet, he said, but I will lay the file of Galadriel upon his breast, and sting shall be at his side. So all of the gifts were going to stay with the corpse of Frodo originally, right? And, and so notice how much more like a burial this is, right? This first... Uh, this this first time. Also, it's really interesting that the spiders, though they're more numerous and, and, in, and in, in that sense more terrible, again, multiple shelubs, right? Um, this first time, they're, they're also more subservient. I mean, Gollum betrays Frodo to the spiders, and the spiders, multiple shelubs, again, act as his instruments, right? I mean, they just sneak in, sting Frodo, and leave. They're not, they're not even going to eat him, right? It's not... Um, they're kind of doing... Uh, doing nothing for themselves, uh, which is, which is interesting, right? Very, uh, very self-sacrificing of them, uh, in that sense. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, so, so more. So he's, he's, uh, leaving the file of Gladrio by his side. He laid Frodo upon his back and crossed his arms on his breast and set Sting at his side. And as he drew out the file, it blazed with light. It lit Frodo's face and it looked now pale but beautiful fair with an elvish beauty, as of one long past the shadows. Farewell, Frodo, said Sam, and his tears fell on Frodo's hands. But at that moment there was a sound of strong footfalls climbing towards the rock shelf. Harsh calls and cries echoed in the rocks. Orcs were coming, evidently guided to the spot. Now, you'll remember that in the earlier outlines, the betrayal of Gollum was chiefly to the orcs and even to the Nazgul. Remember, we had the Nazgul marching out of the gate and Gollum running over to the Nazgul and their armies. And remember that, like, very small, you know, not much uh, uh, conception of distance, right? But just just concept. So there's Gollum being like, hey, the ring's over here, and right, and betraying him right away. And then the Nazgul swooping in and not catching up with Frodo until he gets to the cracks of doom. Um, here we have the double betrayal, right? First, it's to the spiders, but he's still betraying him to the orcs, though not yet, not anymore, directly uh, to um, to the Nazgul. Um, that paragraph that emerged, and... This sounds to me fairly significant. Fairly significant because look at the look at the tense. The tense is a really important. You know, Christopher points this out, right? 
When Tolkien's doing outlines, he does it in the present tense. The three companions now approach Kirithungal, right? Um, already Gollum knew these creatures well, he slips away. The spiders come and weave their nets, right? That's how he uses the present tense when he's doing the outline. When he shifts to the past tense consistently, he's writing in the narrative tone of the book now, right? Then he sat and made a lament for Frodo. That's not an outline the same way anymore. After that, he put away his tears and thought what he could do. But it's so it's shifted to the past tense, but it's still very summary. He could not leave his dear master lying, and he thought he would try and build a cairn of stones about him. He laid Frodo upon his back and crossed his arms on his breast and set Sting at his side, and as he drew out the file, it blazed with light. It lit Frodo's face, and it looked now pale but beautiful, fair with an elvish beauty, as of one long past the shadows. Farewell, Frodo, said Sam, and his tears fell on Frodo's hands. That's not an outline anymore, right? This is the paragraph where it has shifted. Now, it's still not quite as full. He's not giving, like, the kinds of descriptions and things that he would give. Um, He would do more, I think, still than this, if it were, uh, you know, if this were a full draft. But we're pretty completely out of outline mode at this point. And so that's why I think that this moment, um, for me, that really kind of shines a spotlight on this moment, right? This moment of grief of Sam for Frodo is so stirring to Tolkien that he can't just pass it over, right? He can't just uh, do a, you know... Like, Sam composes Frodo's body, right? Light of file on Frodo's face. Sam's tears, right? That could have been something like an outline that he could have written of this, but he he can't do that, right? As soon as he starts picturing it in that kind of detail, it all comes out, right? And it shifts in this way. And Lynn, I agree, that detail, that the detail that we get of his tears falling on Frodo's hands is very striking, isn't it? Um, why his hands in particular, right? Um, I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, on the one hand, you've got, um, Frodo's hands as, like, thinking of the ring, right? His hands are empty now without the ring. Um, so it's like he's, I don't know, he set aside his labors, which could also be sort of symbolically associated with his hands in some way. Um, I'm not... uh, Yeah, Carita's thinking about like like, uh, um, as if he's washing them, right? Like the grief of Sam uh, is washing those hands that have that have borne the ring, right? So like he's he's laying down his burden. Um, Carita, that 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 idea of cleansing, I think, is a really is a really important one. because I think that's exactly what we see before. Remember the whole, the business about the light, the effect of the light of the file on the face of Frodo clearly corresponds with that greenish cast that makes him look like a long dead corpse from the dead marshes, right? Um, that he was before. And that when the, when the file shines on Frodo's face, it shows this sort of other reality. His face is still pale, but he no longer looks like, <laughs> I was just about to <clears throat> lay an excellent compliment upon, um, Upon Frodo, he no longer looks like a bloated corpse. Right now, uh, he's pale but beautiful, fair with an elvish beauty, as of one long past the shadows. It shows, as it were, Frodo at peace. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, yeah. Brian says that you get the impression that Sam, sorry, that Tolkien put this whole episode of Frodo appearing dead just so that Sam could compose a poem. I wonder, Brian, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, you know, here I'm lamenting the fact that we don't get the lament for Frodo, right? Maybe we are getting sort of the substance of it in a sense here. Um, maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Karita's still thinking about the tears on his hands lo- like a blessing, you know, like the woman weeping at Christ's feet and drying them with her hair. Um, yeah, the same kind of washing thing, right? The, like Just like the, the, the foot washing with the tears in the Gospels, right? Uh, so the, uh, the sort of hand washing um, with his tears. I think that's a really interesting connection. Um, yeah, yeah, let's see. Um, yeah, Stephanie, that's just the kind of symbolism that I was thinking of. Stephanie says uh, uh, she thought of, you know, the hands as, uh, you know, sort of Sam's fate and the journey as a whole has been in Frodo's hands. It was his quest. Yeah, exactly. Um, thinking of really essentially the burden that he is laying aside. That seems to be the kind of emphasis that is going on here in this passage, right? Like with the composure of his face and the beauty, the beauty and the peacefulness coming out in his face. Um, and you know, all of the, the, the sort of the, the labor and the pain of his quest and his journey and his task, right. Uh, that he had taken up in his hands is now being sort of washed away by Sam, who's taking it up for him, right. Um, whose hands are now going to bear that burden as far as he knows until the end of the quest. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really poignant, Tony. I hadn't thought of that. Tony's remembering uh, that moment when Sam takes Frodo's hand in Rivendell, right? Um, uh, Frodo's hand being connected with his restoration to health, right? His near-death experience and his restoration to health. Um, and so, yeah, that poignant memory, that, you know, that hand which which had been warm, you know, that left hand uh, from his wounded shoulder, Um that left hand, which had been warm, warmed and reassuring, there, thereby reassuring Sam that uh, that Frodo was, but is now, is now, is now cold, right, and composed in death, and to see the tears of Sam falling on his hand, corresponding with the joy and relief of Sam in feeling the warmth of his hand earlier on. I really like that connection, Tony. That works really well. Um, yeah, and Yana, that's a really good point. I think this is the first time the file of Galadriel gets used. Now there hasn't been that haven't, haven't been that many opportunities. Um, we've uh, passed over like the passages of the marshes almost completely in outline form, right before we get here. Um, but yes, uh, I do think Yana. It's important to recall this is the first time we see um, the file in action, right? Um, the very first thing that the gift of Galadriel does is reveal the elvish beauty of Frodo's apparently dead face, right? Um, and that's sobering, right? But um, but important, I think, you know, and uh, uh, fascinating in the context of of the gift, especially in thinking, you know, was, was this uh, anticipated by Galadriel? You know, is this kind of like a known effect, right? You know, one of the known uh, side effects of the, of the file. I wonder. Um, yeah. Um, let's keep going. 
so Orc has, Orc, Gollum has betrayed Frodo to the Orcs, right? So here come the Orcs. Now, Frodo's been put out of commission by the spiders, but now the Orcs are going to come take him away. And, uh, but, and Gollum's trying to tell them, right? Sam is hiding, and they find Frodo, and they think this is great. They found the ring bearer, right? So they're going to haul him back to Minas Morgul and, and, uh, and, and celebrate and, uh, you know, place their call up to uh, Barad-dur so that they can get credit for collaring the ring bearer and saving the day. Um, there was another yes, whined Gollum. Where is he then? said the orcs. Somewhere's nigh. Gollum feels him. Gollum sniffs him. Well, you find him, Sniveller, said the orc chief. He can't go far without getting into trouble. We've got what we want. Ring bearer, ring bearer, they shouted in joy. Make haste, make haste. Send one swift to Barad-dur, to the great one. But we cannot wait here. We must get back to our guard post. Bear the prisoner to Minas Morgul. Added in pencil, Gollum runs behind, wailing that the precious is not there. Right? And so here the orc's not listening. They think they've gotten the ring bearer. Gollum knows. That, I mean, okay, yeah, like, it is the ring bearer, but the precious isn't there, right? There's a really good reason why they should be looking for the other one. Um, uh, yes, Darren, the orcs know what ring bearer means. Um, once one thing that we see here, and remember that was true in the earlier outline as well. The orcs have been briefed. They've been thoroughly briefed. They know about the ring. They know that the ring is being born by a hobbit. Uh, now, remember, that's information in circulation, right? Grishnok knows those things, right? So that information is available to some, though not to all. Grishnok knows it. I don't think Shagrat does, right? Um now, it's possible that Shagrat does know, and he's playing his cards close to the chest because he's talking to Gorbag, whom he doesn't fully trust. Um, so it's a little hard to tell from Shagrat and Gorbag's conversation how much Shagrat, in particular, for instance, knows. I don't think Gorbag knows. Um, Shagrat might. Um, but because of how determined he is to uh, to bring uh, the stuff to Baradur. But if I had to guess... I would say I don't think that Shagrat knows. And the main reason I don't think Shagrat knows is that if Shagrat did know about the ring, uh, you know, that the ring was the important, I don't think he would have brought his bundle without it, right? I mean, he ends up going to Baradur, you know, bringing the bundle of stuff to Baradur, Frodo's stuff, without the ring. And you'd think he would probably know that. I mean, I can't imagine that Shagrat got patted on the back and commended for his labors when he got to Baradur, right? Um, because I think it it's pretty uh, going to be pretty obvious to Sauron that uh, the, uh, the he's missed out on the prize, right? Um, so, yeah. Um, anyway, I think that it's um, yeah, exactly, Yana. They they know exactly what the ring is. They, no, they, they, the the orcs here have clearly been fully briefed. Um, it's interesting to see a bunch of things which we know Tolkien will think through in some different ways later on, right, and change his mind about. Um, one of the things that's kind of interesting to see is, do we get any evidence that he changes his mind? Like, are we going to be able to see why he changes his mind? Like, what evidence are we going to get um, about the the 
the reasons that Tolkien made these changes. It's always easy to supply your own, right? I'm always tempted to do that, to be like, well, it's pretty obvious why you made that change, right? Well, I mean, maybe it's my theory. Uh, Christopher does the same thing. Sometimes he will uh, speculate, though usually he couches it as speculation. Um, But, uh, so it's not always really clear, but it'll be interesting to see if Sauron originally, right, in Tolkien's initial conception, Sauron has put out like an APB on the Bringbearer, right? Everybody in Sauron's forces knows about the Ring of Power. Be on the lookout for a hobbit. He's probably carrying a Ring of Power, and if you bring the Ring of Power back to Sauron, uh, things will be things will be well for you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you're right. Curator was imagining wanted posters uh, with Frodo's face on them. Um, yeah, well, again, Sauron knows that the ring is abroad and borne by a hobbit. You know, that's, that's, that's true still in, in the, in the, in, in the published book, right? Um, but, um, yeah, let's see. Okay, Brandon says, if Shagrat did know, he at least thought it plausible that Gorbag would think he didn't know. Uh, so the information is not universally disseminated. No, it's clearly not universally disseminated. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear that Gorbag doesn't know, because if Gorbag did know, he would have been trying to, to get Frodo's stuff, right? I mean, he. It, it, I, I think it's pretty clear that Gorbag is clueless, and I'm pretty convinced that Shagrat doesn't know either. The really big question is, how did Grishnok find out, right? And Grishnok seems to be the only one who knows. Ugluk doesn't know. Saruman hasn't told Ugluk. Um, I don't see any reason to believe that Ugluk knows. Um, it's only... So the, it, as far as we can tell, the only people that we know for sure know about the Ring of Power and the fact that the Hobbit has the Ring of Power are Sauron, the Ringwraiths, and Grishnak. Does the mouth of Sauron know? I don't even know that he knows. It's not obvious. Maybe he does. Um, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not, it's, it's not clear. It's not plain. Yeah. Um, and Yana, I agree. The fact that they seem to be assuming that he's going to try to take the ring into Mordor is already enough to change the story significantly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, why is it that they're on the lookout for this? Um, Gandalf will say in the published Return of the King that it's not going to enter into Sauron's darkest dreams that they would try to destroy the ring. Um, the mouth of Sauron seems to be under the impression that this the halfling who was caught by Shagrat in Kirith was a spy, right? That's what the orcs say, a spy, a spy, right? Um, uh, to send them as spies... Into, is beyond even your accustomed folly, says the mouth of Sauron to Gandalf. Um, he could be lying, right? He, you know, he could be uh, just trying to manipulate Gandalf by not letting him know how much he knows. Um, he could be bluffing in some sense there. That's possible. But I don't think so, right? Because, again, because exactly, Yana, of what you're bringing up, um, Sauron doesn't, doesn't know. Right, um, and that's made very clear in the published Return of the King, when Frodo puts on the ring at the cracks of doom, and and Sauron becomes aware of him. Remember that the narrator tells us that at that moment, 
all of his enemies' policies are laid bare, right? And the magnitude of his own folly is made clear to him. So clearly he was guilty of folly before he didn't guess. Not until that moment when Frodo puts on the ring does Sauron guess that the ring bearer is taking the ring to the cracks of doom. So I agree, Yana, that's a huge deal. Um, that they not only know, the orcs not only know about the Hobbit, but they seem to have some suspicion about, uh, uh, about what he was, uh, what he was doing and what his plan was. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Pause here for, uh, uh, a word from one of our sponsors here. Um, this is from, from Tara, really nice uh, email from Tara, who says, I cannot express how much joy and intellectual fulfillment I have discovered in the programming Professor Olson offers through Signum University. I was a longtime podcast listener back in the Silmarillion seminar days. That's, that's way back, right? But recently I've gotten involved in the live broadcast for exploring the Lord of the Rings and the Treason of Isengard class via Mythgard Academy. Um... Not only is Professor Olson an amazing teacher, oh, thank you, uh, but my fellow students are such a great group of people who just want to come together and geek out on all things Tolkien. I have found everyone to be insightful, humorous, and polite. Who knew learning could be so much fun? I have loved Tolkien's work for years, but my appreciation of what it represents both personally and from a scholarly perspective has grown and expanded beyond measure. I remain eternally grateful for that gift, and the fittest way for me to express that is through extending a gift of my own back to Professor Olson and the fine institution he has built. May it continue to prosper and grow for years to come. Thank you so much, Tara. As I said, it's really wonderful uh, to hear things like this from people. I mean, it's... It's really, it, it really means a lot to me to kind of pause and reflect. It's one of the reasons I enjoy the fundraising campaign. Um, I've, uh, I've always felt a little awkward asking people for money. Uh, you know, it's, not, it's still not my very favorite thing to do, but it is always fun to stop and reflect because, you know, it's kind of a special thing, really. Um, what Tara says here is exactly what I had like hoped and dreamed of when I found it, you know, when I started this whole thing, <clears throat> when I started my podcast, when I, uh, you know, when I founded Signum and Mythgard and began doing all these other things, that's kind of like exactly how I drew it up that, it, you know, I wanted to help to create uh, a place online that people could have access to from all over the world. And that would enable people uh, to be able to find this kind of community and this kind of satisfaction that wouldn't have been available to them in other ways. And, I mean, as as a lot of you know, it's it's not often that you know a dream that you have and a, 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 a you know a, a thing that you attempt like this uh, really kind of works out uh, that way, and it, and it really happens uh, as you pictured it. And I I know that that's not really uh, you know uh, uh, Tara's very kind, but it's not. Uh, I know that it's not about me. It's not down to me. Um, and I am so grateful to all of you who have joined in, not only uh, for your financial support, but just for those of you who have joined in and made this community what it what it what it really has become over the last like seven years since the Silmarillion seminar. Um, it's been uh, it's been really it's been really awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brandon says one class is far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable students. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So anyway, just thank you guys again. 
All right. Now, this is a fascinating moment in the semi-outline, right? Um, this overview that we get. Smoke and dust afar off suggested that away in the east, more were coming. In truth, they were. Far beyond Sam's eyesight, the armies rode and marched. The Dark Lord had determined to strike. From beyond the inland sea of Rune, up the rivers east of Mirkwood, round the towers of Dal Dugul, they poured through fen and forest to the banks of the great river. Lothlorien was lapped in flame. From the misty mountains, from Moria, Khazad-dûm, and many hidden caves, poured the orcs to meet them. From Harad and from Mordor, they came against Ondor, and sought the walls of Minas Tirith. And out from Isengard, seeing the war beacons afar off, blazing in Mordor, came the traitor Saruman with many wolves." Interesting, isn't it? The war beacons, right? The war beacons are initially designed to alert Saruman to come to the aid of Mordor, right? That's a little bit mind-bending there when you think about that. Uh, but um, this is another. This is a, a fast. This is this to me is a really fascinating kind of hybrid passage. Um, hybrid, I mean, because on the one hand, it's he's dilating outwards again, like, like the camera's panning outwards. So it was an outline and then it kind of swooped down in and, 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 and became a detailed description, especially of that burial scene with Frodo. And now it's kind of going back out and being outliney again, but it's not just being outliney. It's like, um, stepping back and telling, you know, so, so first Sam sees something, right? Smoke and dust afar off suggested that away in the East more were coming, Right. And then we get this pause as, you know, Tolkien, the storyteller's like, yeah, actually, they are. Um, this seems to be another one of those examples where something just kind of pops in there and then Tolkien discovers the significance of it. Why, uh, why is there smoke and dust afar off in the east, right? Oh, well, of course, right? I can see now um, the, the, the enemy is on the move, right? The Dark Lord is determined to strike. And then we get this whole thing. But now notice how, again, I, again, I call it a hybrid passage because he gets, he, he, he starts outlining, right, all of the different, you know, ways in which uh, 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 Sauron's armies are moving and, and which Sauron is attacking. And yet there are touches in this outline description in which I think that we can hear him, um, we can hear him modulating into more polished language. In particular, notice the alliteration that he uses, right? Um, Round the towers of Dal Dugal they poured through fen and forest to the banks of the great river. Through fen and forest is not how you talk when you're just doing a really sketchy outline, right? Um, Lothlorien was lapped in flame. Again, like, this language just comes to him, right? As he's Lothlorien was lapped in. I love that alliteration. Actually, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm quite so fond of it, but I am. I love that Lothlorien was lapped in flame. Um, uh, this is not just. Uh, uh, this is not just the uh, um, the. Uh, Again, uh, the sort of outline uh, language, you know, fire in Lothlorien or something like that. You know, orcs attacking Lothlorien from uh, uh, from Misty Mountains, right? I mean, that's that's what's happening, um, but that's not the language he's using. Um, you know, we see him 
just once again really... I was about to say stuck in, but that's, of course, not at all fair. Um, he's not stuck in this kind of language. He is uh, uh, this pseudo-outline but pseudo-descriptive narrative language um, really just comes to him while he's while he even while he's attempting to do outlining again. Um, I mean, even out out from Isengard, seeing the war beacons afar off, blazing in Mordor, came the traitor Saruman with many wolves. Um, really cool. Yeah, uh, Josiah, I really like the... Um, Josiah's pointing to the From the Misty Mountains, from Moria, and many hidden caves poured the orcs to meet them. Um, the way that the M's kind of string that 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 phrase along. I mean, yeah, the, the sort of the cadence and the alliteration of this... Um, is re- but again, this is all something that's all. This is all in brackets, right? This is it's, it doesn't actually belong here, right? Uh, but it, uh, um, but it's still it just it just it just you know. So again, he's outlining, but boy, he's in a groove, isn't he? Now, Sam comes in to rescue Frodo, so he's wearing the ring, right? He sneaks in. Um, Several major differences, of course, between this narrative. Christopher Tolkien is really good about this. How, like, on the one hand, this sequence is obviously the precursor of the Tower of Curathungal, right? This is where that whole concept uh, begins. But as Christopher very rightly emphasizes, there are so many changes that are going to happen to this whole sequence. Um, you know, this whole Sam gets taken by orcs and or Frodo gets taken by orcs and Sam rescues him sequence um, that it really is going to amount to a totally different conception. Um, of course, one of the major differences is that this is Minas Morgul that uh, he's been taken into and from which Sam rescues him. Uh, and uh, uh, So anyway, so here's Sam trying to uh, get into Frodo. Suddenly Sam took courage and did a thing of daring. The longing for his master was stronger than all other thoughts. He sat on the ground and began to sing. Troll song, or some other hobbit song. Or possibly part of the elves' song, O Elbereth. Yes. <laughs> but I can't just... I love... I love... I can't even describe how much I love the fact that Tolkien's first impulse was to have Sam sing the troll song. I mean, come on. That is awesome. Right? You know, I've, I've said... How many times have I said how much Tolkien obviously loved the troll song, right? As if we needed more evidence that Tolkien loved the troll song. The, 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 the very idea of moving it. And he's already got it in place, right? Remember, originally the troll song he was going to give to Frodo in The Prancing Pony. But he pretty quickly canceled that, right? And then he decides to bring it back by giving Sam the song and the troll shaws. But wait, no. Let's promote it, right? Let's put it at this really pivotal moment and, uh, and, have, and just that concept, right? I mean... I think that the visual image of Sam in an occupied and populated Minas Morgul, right, singing the troll song, right, and gave him the boot to larn him, warn him, darn him, right? I mean, come on now. That is awesome. I mean, goodness knows. I love the song that Sam actually is going to sing in the Tower of Kirithungal, and I'm glad that we got it. Um, But boy, you know, that image is really enough to... Is really enough to, <laughs> to, to 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 warm the heart there, um, but uh, yeah, 
Um, <laughs> Brian is thinking it would have been great if Sam had drawn out the orcs by singing the bath song. Uh, sing hey for the bath at close of day. Sure, sure. Um, you know, or the ho, ho, ho to the bottle I go song, I suppose. But there's just something even because, of course, the troll song is is a song of defiance. It's not that it doesn't fit. Right? It's not like, you know, Tolkien is just tossing out the first random Hobbit song that he can think of. It's it's, you know, that the idea of, you know, the you know, the protagonist of the troll song being confronted by, you know, this superior uh, enemy. Right. You know, the troll who could probably eat him. Um, and, uh, you know, having the, the daring to slip up behind him and give him the boot to learn him, right? Um, the, 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 the pluck, the cheek required, uh, so to speak, by the, uh, by the, the, the singer of the, you know, the, the, the protagonist, as they say, of the, uh, of the troll song. It works, right? Um, but, uh, but still, it's kind of, uh, it's not kind of awesome. It's really awesome. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, Tony's wondering if this might be just a reprise of the song. So, Tony, would he keep it in both places, right? Have Sam sing the full song there and and just uh, uh, sort of recall the troll song here? Possibly. Possibly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, Tolkien's like, well, maybe he he'll sing, Oh Elbereth, right? Uh, yeah, no, that's probably, you know. In the end, he decides that uh, singing the singing the 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 hymn to Elbereth probably even more appropriate. Um, now I agree, Tara. It uh, mightn't have had the same effect um, on the Yorks, right? As something Elvish, they might have been. They certainly would have gotten their attention. Um, but but it would have had a different effect. You know, Tara, one thing that we can see here, right? Remember the, in the published text, the significance of the interpretive mistake that the orcs make, right? The fact that they think that a great elvish warrior is loose. Um, they're misunderstanding the signs and thinking, you know, doing less good of a job than Aragorn does at reading the signs and thinking that uh, Sam is actually a huge and dangerous warrior, which, you know, one out of two isn't bad. But um, anyway, that's nowhere in the uh, that's nowhere in the original. Right. That's nowhere in these first um, that's nowhere in these first texts. Um, but I wonder, Tara, if this is the seed of that. Because, of course, if he had sung the troll song, not only would it obviously have sounded like a hobbit, but it's a hobbity song, right? No one's going to be like, is that an elf warrior singing that song about kicking a troll in the butt? Right? That's, it's not very elvish, right? Um, nobody could really possibly think that it was an elf warrior singing that song. So by making his choice to say, no, he doesn't actually sing the troll song. He sings, O Elbereth. Um, it at least it sort of opens. It, oh, it's not going to play a, a part in, in in the in in the plot yet, right? But it seems to open up the door to kind of plant that seed for. Um, no, he's going to sing a song of defiance with elvish power, right? To be singing what is what is what is literally an invocation of power, right? In elvish, um, and which could very easily be mistaken for the song of an elvish warrior. Um, so. I think that's that's to me a really fascinating element of that moment there, Tara. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jennifer, fair enough. Jennifer says they'd only think it was an elf if he started singing "Tra la la la." Good point. Good point, Jennifer. You're absolutely right. Uh, are you are you suggesting that maybe uh, uh, maybe elves mightn't necessarily sing a wholly dignified song in this moment either? Possibly, possibly. But clearly, O Elbereth is a more elvish song uh, than the troll song. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Stephen. I doubt that Gogolad charged into battle singing the troll song. I, I can't. I can't imagine it. But maybe that's just a reflection of the poverty of my own imagination, perhaps. And uh, and perhaps uh, uh, Jennifer's teasing there is is is, uh, uh, is is perfectly apt and justified. Let's keep going. Cries of anger are heard, and guards come from stairs above and from below. Stop his mouth, the foul hound, cry the orcs. Would that the message would return from the Great One, and we could begin our questioning, or take him to Barad-dur. He-he, they have a pretty way there. There is one who will soon find out where the little cheat has hid his ring. Uh, sorry, they just brought up a really disturbing image, actually. Like, is, is, uh, is like Sauron going to conduct a full body search when he gets there? I don't want to think about this anymore. Stop his mouth. Careful, cried the captain. Do not use too much strength ere word comes from the great one. By this trick, Sam found the door, for an orc unlocked the east door and went inside with a whip. Hold your foul tongue, he said, as Sam heard the whip crack. Okay. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, Josiah, that's a really good point. Josiah points out how, um, Orcish elocution differs here from in the published text, right? Um, uh, Josiah points out that these orcs are rather, um, rather well-spoken, right? Um, Do not use too much strength ere a word comes from the Great One. You can't imagine Shagrat talking like that, right? Um, And Josiah, it's especially interesting to me in the context of what this text is, right? Again, this isn't a full draft. This is an outline. One of those outlines in which you know, as we have seen before, the sort of d- dialogue just kind of floats in and he shifts and starts including it. Um, the dialogue that has floated in for the orcs here is not very orcish, right? As he's going to come back to this later on, um, we know that's going to that's going to shift around, right? Um, so I'm not quite sure what to make of it, Josiah. You know, what what does it suggest? What does it show that this kind of preliminary because he doesn't have to do dialogue at all. He could go back to, to outline form here, right? He could just be like, you know, guards come uh, uh, come from stairs above, you know. Yeah, I mean, but he 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 goes fully uh, into dialogue, or sort of stays fully into into dialogue here. Um, Tony suggests this is orcish received pronunciation. There you go. Yeah, that might explain it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony is suggesting this could be, uh, yeah, this, 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 yeah, so this is the, uh, the accent of the, uh, the, the, like the urban accent of the orcs, you know, these are the, the ones with the posh accent. Quite, uh, quite, quite possible. Um, Arthur, that's another really good, um, that's another really good point. Arthur points out that it's interesting that in addition to being 
having sort of more polished language in general, they also speak with much more respect and fear of Sauron himself, right? Um, the Great One, they call him all the time, right? And even, not it's not just the title that they give him, but the way they speak of him, um, the kind of reverence with which they speak of him. Uh, um, her word comes from the Great One, right? They're, they, they're, they're, now, that could just be fear for their own hides, right? But um, um, there is one who will soon find out where this little cheat has hid his ring. They're like faith and pleasure, right, in the thought of the tortures that the the Dark Lord is going to, to wreak. I mean, there's, there's, I don't know if I call it affection, but there's, there's uh, uh, definitely respect and fear. Um, as Arthur reminds us, Shagrat and Gorbag just talk about the big bosses, right? And even say, I, the biggest, right? Um, and they say that when they're saying unattractive things, right? When they're casting aspersions at Sauron um, and saying that things have slipped. So, uh, so yeah, I definitely, um, um, I definitely th- uh, think that we can see an interesting change there. And I wonder... I can't help but correlate it, correlate the two things together. That is, the um, higher level of orcish, of orcish elocution that Josiah was pointing out, and uh, Arthur, the the increase of like politeness and devotion that you're pointing out. Those two things seem to me kind of correlated, right? When their thoughts get baser and uglier, so does their language, or vice versa. Right, their language is coarser and uglier, and so therefore, therefore, also are their thoughts. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yes, Yana, I agree. There is a touch of what sounds like religious devotion here. Um, uh, there is one who will soon find out. Right, and he's talking about torture. Right, um, but uh, but yes, um, would that message would return from the great one, ere a word comes from the great one. Um, yes, and, and we know that's appropriate, right? We know that uh, Sauron is often worshipped as a god by his followers. We see that even in Numenor, right? So um, that's uh, that's appropriate. But uh, but yeah, we don't get that in the published text anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, and Brandon, that does seem a fair conclusion um, that they seem to follow him for different reasons, right? The orcs seem only to be terrified into obedience in the published text. Um, here, we seem to have some real reverence, respect, um, respect going even to to reverence, right? Um, which is definitely a shift. Yeah, Brian says, of course, it's devotion and, you know, enjoyment of the art of torture, right? Um, but even that, that's the point, Brian, right? Respect, right? They respect him. Um, for his torturing abilities, if for nothing else, and not just because he might use those torturing abilities on them. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, wait, hang on. What, there was another question earlier on. Um, Stephen is wondering, what is being said that they're trying to shut up? That's a good question, Stephen. Stop his mouth. It does suggest, like, this is more than just pipe down up there, right? Like, I- I'm sick of hearing you. Um, stop his mouth? The foul hound? 
Hound is really interesting too. I don't know why. I mean, because he's baying, presumably, right? Um, well, if he's singing Elbereth, they would probably find it painful, right? Um, I would think that O Elbereth, especially if it were sung in Quenya, right, would probably be physical, physically painful for them to to hear. Um, so, assuming Tolkien is going with his yes there um, in the margin next to that, that I think would be why he's saying stop his mouth. Um, yeah, I, that's I think what that has to be. Um, mm. Now that's an interesting question, Stephanie. Stephanie says, "Do I think uh, this perhaps uh, uh, goes back a bit to the origins of orcs?" Well, that's a particularly interesting question, Stephanie, because we are approaching the point at which the origin of orcs is shifting, right? Um, from the earlier history of Middle Earth material, we saw that originally the orcs are uh, the orcs are a science fair project, right? The orcs are manufactured from scratch, right? Uh, and we even have a partial ingredients list, right? Mud, slime, hatred. Uh, um, you know, those are the things that orcs are... That's what little orcs are made of, right? Um, So, Morgoth constructs them from scratch. Still in the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion, that's still true. Morgoth still manufactures the orcs. He does not corrupt and twist elves into orcs yet. So that's never been stated. That's never been part of the history of orcs. Um... Although they were made more particularly, more specifically, I should say, in mockery. Uh, no, more explicitly, that's the word I really want. Um, more explicitly in mockery of the elves. But not out of elves. They're still being made of, you know, um, mud and uh, slime. And No, Margaret, I don't think there's any puppy dog tails involved in orcs. Just, uh, I don't know what, like, uh, instead of puppy dog's tails, they would probably use, what, like the... The uh, like the broken off tails that newts leave behind, or something like that, you know, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> cat of nine tails says Josiah. That's a little closer than thin puppy dog tails, right? Uh, and it's it's nice because cat of nine tails does scan the same way as puppy dog tails, right? So you could still use it in the same verse. Well done there, Josiah. It's excellent. Okay. So yeah, that's my theory. Because he's officially not singing the troll song, but singing in Elvish. And that's why. Singing to Elbereth in in Elvish. Okay. Frodo groaned and turned over, uncovering his face, still pale from the poison. Why do dreams cheat me, he said. I thought I heard a voice singing the song of Elbereth. You were not dreaming, said Sam. It is me, master. He drew off the ring. But Frodo felt a great hatred well up in his heart. Before him there stood a small orc, bow-legged, leering at him out of a gloating face. It reminded him faintly of someone he had once known and loved or hated. He stood up. Thief, he cried. Give it to me. Sam was greatly taken aback and stepped away. So sudden and grim was his master's face. The poor dear is still mithered, he thought. Uh, First of all, the word of the day today is mithered, right? Or mathered, I guess, as it was, uh, uh, as Christopher says, 
Tolkien spelled it most of the time, this being a dialect word, right? Um, wait, what is it that, what's that phrase that Sam uses? It being a word of his, right? Um, apparently, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Nancy. I was thinking the same thing. Nancy uh, uh, says she just loves Christopher's comment on this and that Tolkien would just use it in conversation uh, because, of course, he was really interested in dialect words, like in words that were particular uh, to a particular region, right? You know, that were part of uh, uh, part of the sort of the local sort of microscopic uh, dialect of, uh, of, of, of a local county or even group of towns. Um yeah, yeah. Um, hmm. Maybe. Darren is saying it would surely be pronounced mithered. Maybe. It looks like mithered, right? Just, I mean, M-I-T-H is generally a short I, but I agree if it's normally a long vowel, um... Yeah, Christopher said, isn't it Mathered, M-A-I? Am I remembering that correctly from Christopher's notes? Maybe I'm confused. Correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, my memory is that Christopher says it's normally spelled and pronounced Mathered. Um, and so it was a little bit odd that Tolkien changed it here. Um, uh, Moithered, that's it, Karita. Thank you. Moithered, yes. Moithered is how it normally is. That's right. That's right. Create a very good memory. Um, <clears throat> Moithered. <laughs> James Oakley is suggesting I did talk about renaming the Mythgard Academy, so we should maybe use the word Mithered <laughs> the Mithered Academy. <laughs> That's good. Um uh in modern usage in the UK it's definitely Mithered, says Darren. Okay, alright, I believe you. I believe you. Um I believe you. Um, but yeah, boy, that uh, I, it never even occurred to me, actually, the closeness of uh, uh, Mithered or Mithered to uh, Mythgard, actually. That didn't even once occur to me as I was looking at that. Um, Moithered is kind of even more fun, actually. But um, yeah. anyway, okay, sorry. Um Yes, Tara, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the way that this scene kind of shrinks down in the published text, it doesn't recall that, but Tara is very right to recall, or right to point out how much this looks like the Turin and Beleg moment, right? Uh, Turin waking up still moithered, right? And thinking that Baron, that Beleg, uh, is uh, is a foe and killing him, right? Um, that's yeah. It is like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I hadn't really thought of that, but you're right. That parallel does seem clearer here than it certainly than it does in the published text. The thing that was really striking me is, uh, yeah, Jennifer's thinking about the the power of the ring to create this hallucination, right? Um, that uh, 
uh, you know, we haven't seen this kind of power in the ring before. Um, and I, I agree, you know, that, that certainly does seem like a, an unusual thing. Um, and I'm not sure what to make of it. Jennifer, there's only one thing, of course, that I would, uh, there's only one thing that I would think. There's only one thing that it reminds me of from earlier in the text. And that is exactly, Kimber, just what you were thinking, too. When Bilbo asks to see the ring again in Rivendell, that brief flash that Frodo has where he sort of sees uh, Bilbo as this distinctly Gollum-like creature, right? That's um, That seems to me a sort of a fairly close parallel there, but this is obviously much more extreme, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, this is like that, but it's much more pronounced, which seems appropriate, right? Jennifer, what interests me, though, even more, is if this is the ring, the ring is having this effect on Frodo from a distance, right? Frodo, I mean, Frodo doesn't have the ring. Now, we know that the ring can influence people that aren't wielding it, right? We see the temptation that Boromir is under, and that's fairly, uh, that's fairly standard. Um, but, but again, this is a different kind of situation than that, quite different from that. Um, I agree that you, you know, Tony, it is possible to chalk this up to some other reason, right? Um, and I'm not saying that I am necessarily fully convinced that it is the ring acting here. Um, it could be, I think. Um, I don't think it needs to be. I don't think it must be. Um, but it definitely, it definitely could be. But, but yeah, the way that it is doing this remotely is, inter- is very interesting to me. Um... Let's look at the sequence a little bit more. Sam draws off the ring, and Frodo feels a great hatred well up in his heart. That's the line that I find most curious. Before him stood a small orc, bow-legged, leering at him out of a gloating face. This is... It's not just he's bleary and thinking that Sam is an orc. I don't, I don't see that. He's seeing details, right? The gloating face, right? He's seeing a facial expression on an orcish face um, instead of seeing... It's not just that he, he sees a dim figure and mistakes it for an orc, right? He's seeing orc details, which aren't there, right? Um, it reminded him faintly of someone he had once known and loved or hated. That's the other thing that I find really fascinating there. Um, that that connection, right? Um, he, uh, this, I, what we see is his love being turned to hatred, right? What should be relief and gratitude and affection, right, towards Sam, as Sam suddenly appears to rescue him so improbably from the middle of Minas Morgul, and instead he feels hatred, right? Um, but the very fact that he can't even recall whether it was love or hatred that he should be associating with this, right? There's a, there's that sort of deeper level of confusion there. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Jennifer. Jennifer's, uh, uh, yeah, it, uh, before Frodo was holding the ring, right, and when Gandalf, or Gandalf, when Bilbo wanted it, he saw that, and Jennifer, I think you're right. Um, Jennifer says it seemed like that little vision he has of Bilbo, Gollumish Bilbo, um, seems to be not just like a warping or twisting, but something like a revelation of truth. Because remember, Jennifer, Bilbo too was aware of it. It wasn't just an illusion over Frodo's senses, right? Um, Bilbo apologizes after that moment, right? It is like it draws something out of him. Um, and he's like, no, I'm sorry, put it away, right? Don't adventures ever have an end? Implication, what just happened was part of his adventure, Bilbo's adventure, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Kate, um, there is something Gollum-esque about the loving and hating the thing and the use of thief, right? Thief, give it to me. That's very Gollumish. I agree. Um, and the, the, the af- close affinity of love, uh, love and hatred there is also very Gollum-like. Um, so that is, uh, that is interesting. Okay. Um, Oh, that's really cool, Josiah. Josiah says it's almost the opposite of the vision of Frodo with Gollum on the mountain, right? Um, Josiah, I assume you're talking about the the one where uh, we get, though Sam doesn't see, right, that image of Gollum as a tired old hobbit, uh, you know, whose touch is almost a caress. Um, We see kind of through the bad appearance to the that one last uh, uh, near repentance, right? That's that's almost there. Um, whereas here, the whole thing is being sort of shifted around backwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, after they patched that up, they talked it over in long in whispering voices. The ring won't cover too, said Sam, and I think you won't want to part from it again. Anyhow, the ring is yours, master, said Sam. Once out of here, you can get away fairly easily, so long as none of the ring wraiths or black riders turn up or something worse. There is some nasty eyes in this town, or the pricking of my skin is merely the shivers of a cold coming on. <laughs> he's, he's coming. Thinks it's either, <laughs> either there are invisible watchers, uh, you know, whose evil spiritual presence is making my skin crawl, or I'm coming down with a cold, one or the other. Um, my advice to you is to leg it as quick as may be. And you, said Frodo. Oh, me, said Sam. That can't be helped. I may find a way out or I may not. Anyway, I have done the job I came to do. Not yet, I think, said Frodo. Not yet. I do not think that we part here, dear friend. Well then, master, tell me how. Let me think, said Frodo. I have a plan, he said at last. A risk, but it may work. Have you still got your sword? Um, Sam's... Acknowledgement, yeah, I agree, Nancy. The casualness of Sam's self-sacrifice. Um, leave me to die. I've done my job, right? Um, he thought he had a purpose, right? He had a job to do before the end. He's done it, right? I, I, you know, when Frodo was betrayed and Frodo was captured and had no hope, there was no way Frodo was possible. Sam rescued him, right? Gave him back the ring sent him on his way. 
that was his job. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, Brandon, I agree. The, the, uh, the, I was going to say ease, but that makes it sound like, oh, it's easy for Sam. And I don't really mean that, of course, but, uh, um, the, the, the calmness of Sam's self-sacrifice is really amazing, Brandon, as you say, in light of the fact that Frodo just called him a thief. Instead of being upset by that, instead of being concerned by that, he um, he understands, right? He takes it right in stride like that. Um, yeah, good. Notice... <laughs> Well, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Lynn is uh, reminded when Frodo says to Sam, have you still got your sword? Uh, uh, sounds to her like, like Sherlock Holmes saying to Watson, uh, do you still have your revolver? Right? Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really fun connection, actually, there, Lynn. I hadn't thought of that. Um, notice the problem here, right? Or rather, see, we, see, we can see the problem that Tolkien is faced with. Um, that Frodo is betrayed to the orcs and then rescued by Sam. That was in the outline, right? Now as he's digging deeper, now as he's really spelling this out, we seem to be running into a problem, right? I can see how, we can see how Sam would get into Minas Morgul using the ring, right? You can see how Frodo would get, how are they both going to escape? Is it even possible? This is Minas Morgul we're talking about, right? I mean, there are all kinds of invisible eyes and whatnot here in Minas Morgul. And uh, uh, and anyway, the ring won't cover them both, right? How? What's going to happen? Uh, there was that line in the outline about possibly dressing up as orcs, but that seems like... Uh, even that seems fairly slim, right? As we'll see moving forward. Now they issued from the Loathly Tower which I'm a big fan of the word loathly, by the way. If it weren't for mithered uh, or moithered, which is even more fun. It's totally more fun. I'm going to I'm gonna stick with moithered from now on. Um, uh, if, if it weren't for moithered being the word of the day already, loathly would have been my word of the day. Big fan of that word. Now they issued from the loathly tower. Evening was falling. Away in the west over the valley of the Anduin, there was some light. Far away loomed the black mountains and the tower of Minas Tirith had they known, but in the east the sky was dark, with black and lowering clouds that seemed almost to rest upon the land. An uneasy twilight lay in the shadowy streets. Shrill cries came, as it were, from underground. Strange shapes flitted by, or peered out of alleys and holes in the gaping houses. There were dispirited voices and faint echoes of monotonous and unhappy song. <laughs> it's not that the orcs don't sing. It's just that the songs they sing are both monotonous and unhappy. That's just the song we might have expected orcs to sing, maybe. All the carven faces leered and their eyes glowed with a fire at great depth. The hobbits shuddered as they hurried on. Feet seemed to follow them, and they turned many corners, but they never threw them off. Rustling and pattering on the stones, they came doggedly after them. Um, yes, Jennifer, isn't that interesting? Uh, uh, Jennifer, this is the first time we get a reference to orc houses, right? We're this close to getting uh, something about like actual domestic arrangements, um, 
for orcs, right? We, you know, we don't, we, we never see that. That's, that's really interesting. Um, And yes, Stephen, I think monotonous, the monotonous songs, the monotonous and unhappy songs of the orcs, I cannot think that that's not intended to recall the monotony of Melkor's theme in the music. Um, I can't imagine Tolkien wasn't thinking of that when he used the word monotonous to describe orc songs. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Josiah, you're right. Um, the orcs of the Misty Mountains, the goblins of the Misty Mountains have much snappier songs, apparently, than the orcs of Minas Morgul do. Um, that is absolutely true. Um, <laughs> Tara's thinking perhaps this is where a ring of uh, a... Uh, Ring of Mazarbal would be useful, right? If only we knew what a Ring of Mazarbal was, we might find one useful here. Uh, that is quite uh, that is quite possible. Uh, yeah, both Sharon and Druid's Fire are thinking of where there's a whip, there's a way. Now there's a non-monotonous song for you. That song is seriously catchy. I love that song. Um, but anyway, it is an unhappy song, sort of. You wouldn't know it if you didn't know the words, right? If you didn't speak English, I don't think you would think the Where There's a Whip, There's a Way song was unhappy. Um, but anyhow. Um, yeah, Thomas, the, that image of the caverns leering is really cool, and I agree. And um, uh, Oh, who was it? Darren was, again, noting how, how beautifully poetic some of this imagery is in this uh, paragraph being, you know, tossed off in a rush as, you know, really as part of an outline and overview. Um, yeah. Yeah. These things just kind of, just kind of come, right? They just kind of pop out there. Um, all the carven faces leered and their eyes glowed with a fire at a great depth, at great depth. Notice the emphasis on the eeriness of Minas Morgul, right? So the problem is here, we've got to we've got a double problem, right? So, there's a whole bunch of orcs in Minas Morgul, right? Uh, probably paying attention. So, how are they going to both escape? Uh, but it's not just orcs. They have to worry about this. Minas Morgul! This is the Tower of Sorcery! For crying out loud, right? Um, it's This is not just an orc problem. Uh, there are bigger issues here, uh, as he's going to be thinking about a little bit more uh, here in just a second. Um, one other passage. I want to pause for a minute here uh, and share one more uh, message that I received with you. Um, and uh, uh, this one, uh, I, I, I found this one particularly moving, so I wanted to share it. Um, I moved from Long Island, New York, to North Carolina in 2014 as my husband belongs to the U.S. Special Forces. This was a very big change for me, and I found during his deployments, besides working, I would have to find something else to occupy my time and my mind. I didn't have any friends in North Carolina, and once he left, I was super lonely, especially at night. Being a longtime Tolkien fan, I began to search for some podcasts and found The Tolkien Professor. I signed up for a Mythgard class right away, and the rest is history. 
For the past few years, I have been regularly attending as many Mythgard Academy classes as I can, catching up with the videos if I can't attend live. This spring, I even took an amazing Signum course on Beyond Middle-Earth. That was so much fun! When I did it with Tom Shippey. Currently, I'm continuing to enjoy the journey that is exploring the Lord of the Rings and the Treason of Isengard. The uncertainty of not knowing if your significant other is alive and well on a daily basis, all the while being alone in an unfamiliar state, can be quite can become quite burdensome. I can only imagine, Stephanie. Um, I cannot thank Corey and everyone at Signum enough for everything they do to continue to enrich our appreciation of Tolkien and literature as a whole. Many nights, rather than laying awake worrying because of Mythgard, I'm able to immerse myself in fairy and wonder while discussing some thought-provoking topics with wonderful people. I can truly say with confidence that Professor Olson, Signum, and Mythgard, and everyone attending live for discussion have made each and every deployment so much easier on me over the years. For that, I am eternally grateful and will continue to support Signum in any way that I can thank you stephanie uh for that um uh, that's uh, uh i i love that 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 image that you gave there stephanie of uh um instead of just uh the you know worrying you know about your husband during his deployment uh being able to immerse yourself in fairy and wonder instead uh is uh is, it just made me think as you see in my subtitle there of um you know tolkien's uh, uh, talk both of escape and consolation, I think, uh, in on fairy stories. So I uh, was reminded of that. So anyway, thank you very much uh, for sharing that. It's always wonderful to, uh, you know, the thing that we lose in, you know, I, we gain so much in being online, right? In being able to be in touch with people. If we were just in a place probably we wouldn't be near you, Stephanie, right? So, it, you know, we would lose all that. But of course, one of the things we don't have so much uh, is that kind of contact, being able to see um, what's going on, getting to know people a little better in that way, being able to see. Um, I love hearing stories about, you know, when and under what circumstances people are uh, listening to classes and participating. It's uh, uh, I always I always find that uh, find that really wonderful uh, to hear about. So thanks a lot for that. We're almost come to the end of class. I'm going to do one or two more slides, and then we're going to do the drawing. So uh, I see several people have donated during class here. That is awesome. Thank you so much for that. Uh, so, yeah, last uh, last call to get in on our uh, uh, the drawing that we're going to do here. All right. I love, I love Tolkien's notes here. Minas Morgul must be made more horrible. <laughs> the usual goblin stuff is not good enough here. The gate shaped like a gaping mouth with teeth and a window like an eye on each side. And uh, you see the little, the, in, in the, the inset that Christopher gave us, right? The little picture he drew is actually kind of cute. Um, anyway, as Sam passes through, he feels a horrible shudder. There are two silent shapes sitting on either side as sentinels. Substitute something of the following sort you know, for, for the bit that came earlier. The main outer gates were now closed, but a small door in the middle of one was open. It faced south. The tunneled gatehouse was dark as night, and the pale skylight showed up as a small patch at the end of the tunnel. As Sam and Frodo crept closer, they saw or guessed the great ominous shape of the sentinels on either side, still sitting soundless and unmoved, but from them there seemed to issue a nameless threat. So... The sentinels that we get at the Tower of Kirithungal were originally in Minas Morgul, which makes some sense because they're kind of Minas Morgul-y, right? Um, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, they sit soundless and unmoved, but from them there seemed to issue a nameless threat. I think it's just me, but every time Tolkien uses the word nameless, uh, it seems to me to have a little more weight than that word would otherwise that would otherwise have. Now, the thing that was already interesting to me about the description of the streets of Minas Morgul that we were just looking at um, is that it's already kind of creepy, kind of kind of kind of horrifying, right? Um, for all their talk in the tower of like, gosh, how are we going to get out past all these orcs? It's not the orcs that are the issue, right? It's the invisible eyes and the the pers- the invisible pursuing feet, right? That are really the problem until they get to the gate. Um, but now it's not just going to be about the orcs at the gate, right? We need something more at the gate, something more than just the vague threat. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree, Thomas. Nameless things are always more terrifying. Sam decides that the way to get out of the gate is with swagger, right? He can't hide. He can't, you know, he can't skulk his way out of the gate. He just needs to swagger it, right? Um, uh, interesting. Tony found that description a very Lovecraftian description. That's interesting. That would be an interesting point of... Uh, uh, I mean, in, in fact, it would be... I think that would be a really interesting contrast as a whole, right? Um, in fact, Tony, you know what that would be? That would be a really good conference paper, right? Somebody should do this for uh, for Myth Moot or for uh, one of our regional moots. Somebody should do a, should do should give a talk, uh, doing a close comparison of Tolkien describing, like you know, horrible sort of demonic things, and Lovecraft describing those things, right? Similarities. Differences. Um, where can we see what kind of uh, distance uh, difference, rather, in flavor can we see in those two things? That would be an interesting paper. Okay. Feeling as little like swagger as ever in his life, Sam walked forward, as bold and unconcerned as he could manage to look, all shaking at the knees as he was, and with a queer tightening of his breath. Each step forward became more difficult. It was as if some will, denying the passage, was drawn like invisible ropes across his path. He felt the pressure of unseen eyes. It seemed an age before he passed under the gloom of the gate's arch, and he felt tired, as if he had been swimming against a strong tide. The sentinels sat there, dark and still. They did not move their claw-like hands. Yeah, they they did not move their claw Okay. They did not move their claw-like hands laid on their knees. They did not move their shrouded heads, struck out, staring stiffly, in which no faces could be seen. But Sam felt a sudden prickle in his skin, and he sensed that they were alive and suddenly alert. As he came between them, he seemed to shrink and shrivel, naked as an insect crawling to its hole under the eyes of gigantic birds." He came to the open door. Just outside, the path ran to a flight of stairs, leading to the downward road. Only one step, and he would be out. But he could not pass. It was as if the air before him had become stiff. He had to summon up his strength and his will. Like lead, he lifted his foot and forced it slowly, bit by bit, over the threshold. On either side, he felt the darkness leer and grin at him. Slowly, he pressed his foot down down. It touched the step outside, and then something seemed to snap. He stood fixed. He thought he heard a cry, but whether just beside him or far away in some remote watchful tower, he could not tell. There was a sudden clash of iron. An orc ran out from the guardroom.
Um, I love this description of Sam. So notice the force of Sam's will, right? On the one hand, we're going to make this... We need more horror, right? Um, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna ratchet up the horror. It's not just orcs. It's not even primarily orcs that Sam has to worry about in order for him to try to escape, even in disguise. Um, but he does it, right? He succeeds. Uh, he pushes through. Um, one of the things I found the most striking about this description is not lifting his foot like lead. Right? That's a little more expected. What surprised me was the image of him pushing his foot down. Right? He managed to lift his foot, but the struggle wasn't just in lifting it. Right? It's not like it was weighted to the ground. Once he lifted it, it became... He had to push it down. Like, you know, he had to force it down. He couldn't even do that. That, that, uh, you know, the fact that both the lifting and the putting down required equal strength and equal will on his part. Um, I found really, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the way in which putting his foot down is like pushing it through, uh, something hard, really giving you that sense of him penetrating this barrier that is established there by the will of the, of the two sentinels. Um, I thought that was, I thought that was really neat. Um, the sentence that I stumbled all over several times, uh, the description of them is really interesting. They did not move their claw-like hands laid on their knees. It's the laid on their knees that I kept stumbling on, right? And that's what I think the reason I kept stumbling on it is that it surprised me, right? Uh, as I was reading it aloud, it surprised me. They did not move their claw-like hands. If it were just that, they did not move their claw-like hands. What's being emphasized about their hands is just the clawness of them, right? In other words, the threatening nature of their hands. If he only said they didn't move their claw-like hands, it invites us to imagine them moving their, their hands, right? And since their hands are claw-like, we can imagine what that motion would be, reaching out for him, uh, you know, to puncture him and rip him, right? Um, but instead he adds, laid on their knees, right? To emphasize that though their hands are claw-like, they are passive, right? They're not poised, right? They're not like the they're not like the the weeping angels uh, in uh, in Doctor Who, right? Like like that, right? They're not like that. Um, they're just their hands are admittedly claw-like, but but lying on their knees, right? Um, and then notice how it follows that up immediately afterwards. Um, they did not move their shrouded heads in which no faces could be seen. Um, and initially, staring stiffly, right? There's that image of stiffness, right? Of course, like, they're apparently statues, so of course they're stiff. Uh, and he does cross that out pretty quickly. But again, the emphasis is about uh, their stillness, right? Their apparent visible passivity, Um the threateningness, the the horror of them, um, is strong, right? It's very real, and yet it's all about their will and their will against Sam's, not against any kind of physical threat. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Yana says he likes this version of events in Minas Morgul rather than Kirith Ungol, um, and he's sad to see it go, even if it is just for Sam's undeniable swagger. Uh, yeah, I, it's really powerful to have this happening in Minas Morgul, and Yana, I will admit, one of the things I was always, you know, on my list of like regrets from the Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, you know, not all of these were like things that I didn't like about the story at all, but rather things that I wished I got more of, right? Um, high on that list for me was always, I wanted to get to get to know Erkenbrand a little better than, than we got to, right? I want to know more about Erkenbrand. I was disappointed we didn't get any more Erkenbrand in that story. Um, similarly, I wanted more Minas Morgul. I mean, it was scary. It was creepy, right? But <sighs> Minas Morgul, since the Ringwraiths, are such a central force throughout the whole story. And this is the home of the Ringwraiths, right? Uh, and the descriptions of it are amazing. Like, we were t- weren't we talking last time about the imprisoned light and the, the corpse light and all that stuff, right? Um, somehow, sometime or other, we were talking about... And I was talking... With somebody, I was talking about that relatively recently. Um, and, you know, I think that that's... Um, I mean, so all that stuff I always found really cool, but yet we never go. You know, Frodo comes right up to it and then turns away and they go around. Um, and it's not that I found that exactly anticlimactic, but I, uh, again, I, I just sort of like wished we'd learn more about it because the, the, the very sound of the name Minas Morgul, um, you know, the Tower of Sorcery, sounds interesting, right? Eerie, scary, horrifying, but, but interesting. Um, I always wanted to see what does that, you know, the silent watchers, what were the silent watchers like? What's, what's it about? What, you know, anyway, I always wanted to see more of it. So, um, but of course, admittedly, it would have been a side quest, right? Because, uh, they, you know, their straight path didn't go through Minas Morgul, but I always kind of asked, well, what if it had? And it's, uh, really interesting, of course, as we see here in the early manuscripts that he had planned that originally, um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Jennifer. We, we do only get a kind of a drive-by tour uh, of Minas Morgul in the published book. Um, yeah. Now, you know, Brianna, you're right. You know, uh, Brianna points out that knowing is a, more of a double-edged sword. Your questions are answered, but, you know, that feeling and longing and wonder is quenched. Yes. And, you know, that longing and wonder that comes from, you know, having only an imagined answer. Yes, though, I mean, there is certainly a power in an untold tale that is not the same as in a told tale, right? But I don't think that the telling of the tale lessens it, necessarily. It can do, of course, I suppose. I mean, we could think of examples where that does happen. Um, But, of course, the biggest example of this, obviously, is the, uh, um, is the Silmarillion, right? Um, knowing the legends of the Elder Days, those things that are only hinted at and, and, uh, alluded to, uh, very indirectly and very occasionally in the Lord of the Rings, um, reading the stories doesn't lessen them, right? Um, but, 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 but I do, I do see your point. I mean, there is, uh, to say, 
what I really want is to have my every, you know, desire to know more fulfilled is not necessarily uh, the best, uh, uh, the best, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's a reason to, to question that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Nancy was just pointing that out too. It's the same argument people used against publishing the Silmarillion. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, Bruce. That's great. Bruce says, "If you travel to the mountains, do they lose that quality of far-off mystery?" Remember that passage, uh, you know, Bruce. If you know "Leaf by Niggle," remember that passage. It's one of those. It's a really small reference, but under the, uh, um, under the, the in the context, I find it really really interesting, right? Um, in in the picture, when he's at Niggle's Parish, he goes to distant mountains, and they remain distant mountains, right? Um, they don't just become mere surroundings, right? They don't come become near mountains. That kind of mystery that they have when you see them off in the distance, and which they lose when you walk among them, at Niggles Parish, they don't lose that, right? He can walk among them, and, and they still remain distant mountains. Bruce, to me, it's kind of like that, right? Um, uh, that's the sort of the dream, right? To be able to capture both. Of the, yeah, Bruce, I thought you might be thinking of that. Um, yeah, good, good. I wonder, Josiah, Josiah's speculating, you know, wondering if perhaps the the fact that his descriptions don't capture the full terror of the city is perhaps one of the reasons why Tolkien did transplant these things and decide to move out of Minas Morgul and merely suggest rather than describe Minas Morgul. It's possible. Certainly possible. Um, yeah. All right. Well, it's getting late. Uh, and I forgot, I actually started it on time. Uh, so, uh, let's, uh, we're going to end there, but wait, don't forget. We have our drawing, so let's do our drawing here. Hang on, let me get back to my list there. Okay, excellent. What do we need? Okay. Two. two okay. I don't just how to do that. Needless to say, I'll be rolling my rolling my dice here to determine our to determine our winners. Okay. Here we go, you guys ready? And the fourth prize, book of your choice from Mythgard Academy or one of Tolkien's works with special customized book plate from me goes to Rachel Draper. Excellent. Congratulations, Rachel. I don't know, Rachel, if you're with us live tonight. Uh, I know you often attend live, Uh, but awesome. Rachel Draper wins the fourth prize, the third prize, another inscribed book goes to Matthew Glachant. Excellent. Very cool. Awesome. Congratulations. Uh, Hey, Rachel, you are here. Very good. Uh, Second prize. Second prize is two inscribed books. Goes to Oliver Lynn. Wonderful. I just got your email earlier today. Oliver, congratulations. Thank you so much uh, for your donation. Uh, And needless to say, again, thanks to everybody who donated. And don't forget, 
there's an opportunity for winning more prizes. We're going to give away more stuff at the Webathon, so it's totally not over if you don't uh, win here tonight. Let's see the grand prize, the inscri one inscribed book, plus your choice of either doubling your Mythgard Academy votes or uh, uh, getting a uh, access to one of the Signum Course archives goes to... Kyle Latino, Kyle Latino, congratulations. You are the grand prize winner in our drawing here. Uh, another person just emailed me today, so very good. Kyle, and I, I know I see you a lot on Twitter as well, so that's, uh, that's cool. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for joining me today. Don't forget, Saturday, going to be fun all day long. Special Mythgard Academy session at 420 on the dot. Uh, I look forward to seeing a bunch of you there. Uh, and don't forget, you can attend on twitch.tv slash signumu. Um, or you can come here to the... Uh, to the old netmoot, uh, if you like, there's a there's a netmoot link uh, posted on the page, um, on the the page. The, there's an event page I should have mentioned, uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's been posted here as well, uh, signumuniversity.org, and you just scroll down a little bit, and you'll see a uh, a uh, a link to the event page. So, thanks very much, everybody. See you guys on Saturday. Bye now.